Connections Cast, brought to you by TDN Australia and New Zealand. Hello, I'm Angus Rowland and welcome to a Connections Cast Mate vs Mate special presented by TDN Australia and New Zealand. Today, two absolute legends of the sport will lend their opinions on a variety of topics, including one another. Our first guest is a Hall of Famer. He won multiple Sydney Jockeys Premierships, rode all around the world, and has become an accomplished Group 1 trainer. Ron Quinton, thanks for joining us. How's the stable leading into spring? I'm the uh, leading into the spring with a pretty lean, lean team, actually. Um, so, uh, yeah, I haven't got any superstars, so uh, just still got a, quite a few young horses going through the motions, and uh, most of them are not going to... Not going to see most of them to layer three. What's the old saying? As long as you've got a, a young horse in the stable, you've got some hope. Yeah, if you've got an untied horse, you've got some chance for sure. Well, our second guest is also a Hall of Famer. He's also won multiple Sydney Jockeys Premierships. He also rode all around the world, and to complete the connection, he also accomplished the feat of being a Group One winning trainer. Darren Beedman, nowadays you're with the Godolphin operation and it seems that a September doesn't roll by without unveiling a star three-year-old colt in the Royal Blue. Animo is the latest exciting one. How's he pulled up? Yeah, good, Angus. Um, he's pulled up really well. He had a, the beauty of it. He was able to have a, a soft run and um, James McDonald left a little bit of meat on the bone uh, for, for down the track, um, you know, it's always they're having their first run back after a strong two-year-old campaign. It's always you're just hoping that you know everything goes goes together for good. And um, he, um, you know, he, he won convincingly and won with us, as I said, a little bit in hand. And um, knowing that, um, you know, the horses they feel good about themselves. He, he thought he was king of the hill when he was walking around. Um, back at the tie-up stalls after the race, after being swabbed and had a good bounce in his step. So that's always refreshing to see. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go back to the beginning for the two of you. If this was a comic book movie, your origin story would be shared. You both came through the Theo Green production line. Ronnie, you came through first and were an established writer by the time Darren started. Surely Darren had it easier than you, though. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we softened Theo up a bit for him. <laughs> up for him, so it wouldn't be too tough on him. So we done all the hard yards. He bellowed oh. by the time he got to me. He was knackered. Exactly. <laughs> Darren, is there an alumni club of Theo Green apprentices? Do you guys all get together for reunions, or is it just sort of you see one another at the races and, and you know catch yeah. up and reminisce? Yeah, you, you you see each other on the run. Um, so much more. Yeah, I see much more Ronnie and um, Jimmy Innes, um, James Innes uh, Senior. See him around the tracks a little bit and um, speak to Kenny Stone every now and then. And and we try and contact Malcolm, but he doesn't answer his phone. So, um, <laughs> but uh, no, we we don't. Um, you know, we sort of you know we live a pretty busy life. All right, let's play a little game, how well you know one another. I'm going to start with you, Ronnie. I'm just going to ask you five questions about Darren. Um, we'll insert a little ding in post. 
there it is. Um, if you get some right, uh, but uh, and then I don't know, we'll send through a TDN Australia New Zealand keep, and to the winner. Angus, keep the keep the questions G rated, all right? <laughs> as long as you promise to keep the answers G rated, I'm fine. Uh, righty, okay. What was the name of Darren's first Group One winner as a jockey? First Group One winner. Wow. I'll give you a clue. He was a slipper winner. And you tried to get me off. So you tried to get under my neck, right? So inspired with your first group one winner in the slipper. That's it. I did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I did mention to Theo Green at the time. I said, "Oh, look, I should. You should. I should be riding that horse in the slipper." I said, "You can't be putting these apprentices on in these slippers, you know." <laughs> so. His answer was to me, Theo's answer was, he said, son, I'd love to put you on it, but you're not riding it. <laughs> Darren's riding it. He said, you can ride the stable, mate, if you want to. I said, yeah, but it's got no hope, boss, you know. Anyway, there was history made and Darren got the chocolates. All right, Ronnie, what was the name of Darren's first group one winner as a trainer? Actually, I've got a couple of two-year-olds by the sire, actually, impending. Love it. Love it. Ding, ding, ding. Darren wrote a couple of colts who became champion sires of Australia. Can you name one of them? Oh, well, of course, Octagonal and uh, Long Row, I suppose. You have to put him in. Ding, ding, ding. Come out of the blocks running. Kiwi, you're like... I tell you, you're like what? Vain. You're like vain. <laughs> <laughs> Darren, did you get a, did you get a ride on Redoute's Choice as well? You picked a, had a pick-up in a CF4 or something? Is that yeah, 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 rode him in the CF4 and, um, and then he went a miss after that. Probably similar answer to the last one, Ronnie, but what does Darren consider to be the best horse he rode? Um, oh, I think, I think he'd, he'd have a big soft spot for long run and I know he uh, regarded Saintly as very, very, very good. But I, I think he'd have a big soft spot for long run. How'd he go there, Darren? Guys, no, he hasn't copped a check in running yet. <laughs> he's he's in front. Well, well, we'll see if we can trip him up with a, a, a slightly trickier one for your last question. Now, you both no longer have to watch your weight. Uh, Ronnie, what is Darren's favourite food? I don't really know, but I, re I reckon he'd be into the Chinese a bit myself. Yeah, I love a good Chinese. Love a good Chinese. Oh, my God. That is freakish. Mm. That is freakish. How do you like your chances, Darren, in the return bout? Well, I didn't see a lot of Ron riding, so you might you might have the wood on me there, but I'm going on on, on what I've read and what, what I've, you know, been told. So, um, yeah, I'm, uh, hopefully I can nail it. Let's see how accurate Wikipedia is. Darren, what was the name of Ronnie's first Group 1 winner as a jockey? You know, I was going to Google Ron and, <laughs> and stalk him because I thought, like, it's, I, think, I think, put it this way, I reckon I was born in 1965 and I reckon Ronnie would have rode his first winner before I was born. So that's all I can tell you at the moment. <laughs> Not quite right. I started riding in nineteen. I started riding in nineteen sixty-five. Right. 
Yeah. She came out of your apprenticeship towards the end. Of the, it was the seventies before you got a Group One winner, wasn't it, Ron? And it was a uh, a very handy filly, I think. I can't even remember. Uh, was what, it Anna, Anna Lee? Oh, she was a very good filly. All right, Gus gets a point there. Right. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Gus, mate. Yeah, well, mate. Yeah, she was a great filly. Tommy Smith trainer. She won. I rode her on uh, three consecutive Saturdays. He won a fillies and mares race at Warwick Farm with 59.5 kilos on the Saturday. I won the Doncaster on the next Saturday as a three-year-old filly carrying 49 kilos. Wow. And then the, wow. following, the following Saturday, she won the Oaks 2400 by five lengths. Gee. She was outstanding, Philly. All right, let's move on to the training side. Uh, Darren, what was the name of Ron's first Group 1 winner as a trainer? I was I was going to say I was going to I thought about Buller Borghese what won the Oaks. Um, now could have it been Easy Rocking. Boom! Ding ding ding! Insert noise here. Well done. Yeah. Well done. We won the Canterbury Stakes, didn't we, Ronnie? Yeah, you you were actually riding him and you sacked me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the sling was, the sling wasn't big enough. But I, I thought I was going to get more for the sling, so I thought. Yeah, I thought, oh, well, he's, he used to cop pretty good slings when he was a jockey. He'd know how to give it, give some slings to jockeys, and it was a bit light on Canterbury Stakes. And uh, as a matter of fact, Easy Rocking beat you on uh, Umrum. Oh, did he? Yeah, you run second on Umrum on the outside fence. <laughs> Not that Ronnie's held a grudge or anything like that. <laughs> but Ronnie also rode a cult who became champion sire of Australia. Who was that, Darren? Uh, you rode one of his sons, March Hare, to win a George Ryder. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, you got me there. Can I find a friend? As long no. as it's not Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> so, March Hare was by Masco. Yeah. Oh, okay, Masco. yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, okay, who, Darren, who would Ron consider the best horse he rode? Gee, well, I reckon he, like, Road Baguette, Emancipation, Dalmatia, Sir Dapper. Um, he had a, had a few cracks at it, didn't he? I only rode Kingston Town twice. Oh, there you go. Uh, so I, won, I won the middle cocks played on him. Mm. And then I got beat on him in the McKinnon. So I only rode him twice. Mm. And then, uh, of course, Emancipation, well, she had 27 starts for 19 wins. And I rode, I won 18 on her. Mm. And the only, only day I didn't ride her was Kevin Moses went to Melbourne and rode her in the Edward Manifold. And uh, I stayed at home and won the Epsom on Dalmatia the same day. Mm. The prize money was a little bit richer for the Epsom, so I stayed at home. Del Macia was one of my favourite horses. Um, I think I won nine races on him, and uh, but I, I, I really like that horse. And uh, Sir Dapper, um, well, he was a great colt. He was a great colt. I, I won the Super on him. That was the only day I rode him as a two-year-old, and he come back as a three-year-old next next prep. And he went through and 
uh, one from a thousand meter suit at twenty one hundred in the one. Yeah. Wow. Um, uh, the only day I got beat on him was in the Caulfield Guineas. I got beat a neck on him in the Caulfield Guineas. Brent Thompson beat me on a horse called Beechcraft. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I had a good association with Sadapa. I only rode him seven times for six wins and a second. So he was a marvellous colt. Mm. He sure was. Darren, what would you say Ronnie's favourite food is? <sighs> say like a little bit of Italian Look, I like all sorts of food a bit, you know, but um, now I'm cooking for myself. Well, it doesn't sort of, it, the menu's not that great, but, yeah, so I know I like going out for, for dinner when we, when we can. We can't now, but when we can, I enjoy going out for a, a nice meal on a Saturday night. And, Given that, given that you've completely destroyed Darren in this uh, who knows who better quiz, uh, maybe um, Darren can take you out for a feed on a Saturday night when everything calms down and we're out of lockdown. Daz, how do you get five out of five? Yeah, I said uh, that's why he's the master, I guess. With blue diamonds, golden slippers and champagne stakes contributing to Newgate Stallions claiming all three spots on the podium for first season sire, last season was an historic one. This season, a revolution is coming. 66 golden slipper nominations, the leader of his generation, progeny in the stables of all the leading trainers, a machine on the track, a legacy in the blood. Russian Revolution, first two-year-olds this season. Let's, uh, let's talk about the slipper. It's the stallion-making race. And, Darren, your, your two slipper winners didn't help the stallion-making reputation very much. One was a gelding and the other one was infertile uh, in, uh, in Inspired and, and Guineas. But, Ronnie, your four, Masquet was a two-time Australian champion sire, marauding side two slipper winners himself, Rory's jester, I mean, I think he got more pre-Christmas two-year-olds than any stallion ever. Even Sir Dapper, he was no star, but he's the broodmaster of Testarossa. Were there any shared traits between those, apart from obviously being incredibly fast two-year-olds, that you think made them good sides? I think um, Marsgay was a, the dominant two-year-old all year and... Um, Although he got beat to start before the slipper, Jack Denham was very, very confident that he could win the slipper. And he, he had the Cornella, actually, Jack. He, um, Bandara. Bandara. And this is a true story. We were in the enclosure before the race and the two lots of owners were, were all talking together. <clears throat> and Jack said to Wally Truscott, he said, uh, Wally, he said, the filly will be in front of the furlong but the colt will run over it. And that's exactly what happened. I think I was two or three lengths behind Bandara, probably the 300, and he, he, he beat about two and a half lengths pulling up, you know. So yeah. he was a really precocious, big, strong two-year-old. So he was ready to go as a, as a young two-year-old. He went right through, won the silver slipper at 900 metres at Rose Hill. Then when I took over riding him the following season, and um, and then of course Rory's Jester Lee was a precocious two-year-old. Um, Sir Dapper, Sir Dapper, 
Well, as I said, in his three-year-old uh, preparation that I rode him, one from 1,000 metres to 2,100, the champion stakes at Warwick Farm. Um, and um, marauding, well, he was a monster two-year-old. Brian Matthew Smith told me he was 580 kilos and yes. he wasn't only tall, but he was long. Um, that's what I told John Shrek when I caused the interference in the straight. I said, why are you in the semi-trailer? I just lost the load a bit. <laughs> Did you notice, Ronnie, the sort of heritability when you saw going to the sales when you first took up your licence as a trainer, if you saw a masque or a marauding let out of a box, could you spot them straight away? Yeah, most of the, the masques were big, uh, precocious-looking young horses and You'd expect them to run early. Marauding was sort of, um, see, Marauding was by Sir Tristram. Mm -hmm. and it, was un, it was unheard of that a Sir Tristram would win a Golden Slipper because they were just big horses and most of them were middle distance or middle distance horses or stayers, you know. So, but he, he was he, he was a very, very good horse and he, he probably wasn't the soundest horse either and, and he probably didn't. I think I, I rode him in a a mile away phrase race at Renwick and he actually run quite well. I probably give him too, a bit too much start that day, but I was trying to get him to relax and settle. Probably just got out of his ground a bit too far and I think he might have run fourth. Darren, you're probably best placed to judge the heritability or traits that get passed on through your relationships with the Inghams and, in particular, Octagonal to Lonro to now Godolphin. Mm. There are a lot of similarities between Octagonal and, and Lonro, most notably colour and probably the size of their heart. But how were they different? Probably acceleration really defined the difference between Lonro and Octagonal. Um, if, there, if there was one trait that, that was indifferent, between both horses would be acceleration. Um, and a couple of times I rode, well, I rode uh, octagonal in the Canterbury Guineas, which, you know, they don't have any more. It's now the, the Randwick Guineas, and that was over 1,900. And, like, you went from the Hobartville 1,400 to the 1,900 Canterbury Guineas. So it's a bit of a jump, a bit, bit of a jump. And, you know, Canterbury wasn't really his track, so I had to ride him a little bit out of his comfort zone. So that just showed you the quality of Lonro that he – of Octagonal, that he, he, he could he could do it if you asked him. And even the day that Shane Dye rode him in the Chipping Norton, I went there. I know they went, you know, pedestrian speed for the first six 800 metres, but then, you know, I think there was only a small field and they were going to – Walked down to the 600. Well, Shane got on his bike. Uh, Shane Dye got on his bike and got going. And I think he ran his last half mile in 56. So he he had it there to accelerate. But Lonra was a a little bit more dynamic as far as being able to sort of you know when you push a button. He was he was a very unique horse in the sense that I'd never ridden another horse that that actually. When you sat on top of him and you you started to go through your gears, you could really start to feel him like lower down. It was 
was a quaternary feeling. Like you, you see those, well, you hear about high-performance cars that they lower themselves down to to sort of handle the corners or whatever. But it was a natural thing for him that you could feel him just lower down. Might only be four inches, but it was enough to say, well, you know, he really wanted to get into the into the turf and and chew it up. So he was he was a very unique horse in that sense. That that is. That is fascinating. Have you, I mean, you're not sitting on them, but have you observed any of that sort of lowering in his in his offspring? You know, the, the quicker long rows that, that Godolphin have had? Yeah. Um, well, impending, he, 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 he wasn't an overly big horse and he was running against a horse, um, one of his, you know, stable mates was a stern, and but he was always like six months in in advance maturity wise. And if I found and I've noticed over the over the times that you know I did ride, you know, the Lonrow Colts or Phillies, they just took a little bit more time to just come into their own. They weren't really sort of two year olds, but you know, like Exus Fear, well, you know, he was he was a it was good. You get the odd one, but they generally t- seem to like a little bit of time. Unbeaten champion two-year-old Colt Admire Mars joins the Arrowfield roster in 2021, with much to add to the growing story of Japanese success in Australia. A son of Group One winner and leading sire Daiwa Major, and the French Group winner Via Medici. Admire Mars won three races at the top level, including the Asahi High Futurity Stakes at two and the Tokyo NHK Mile Cup at three. The Blazeface Dynamo is also the only three-year-old to claim the prestigious Hong Kong Mile at Sha Tin. If you want to tap into a sideline that is rising the world over, contact the team at Arrowfield today. Going back to the octagonal long row thing, do you reckon that Sade, the mum, has a bit to do? Because she... They, Lonro had the full brother, Niello, who you also won a Canterbury, Canterbury Guineas on. Yeah. And he was a different horse again, wasn't he? It was a different mould, different shape to, um, you know, to, to, to Lonro. Um, I think Shada, she was quite electric. So that's where, you know, Lonro might have got the, the um, you know, the, the speed from. But... You know, like octagonal. Well, he was by Zabil. So, and Zabil, mm. like he, I think he, he was, he was pretty. I think he won a Australian guineas. He won a mile. He was a miler, but he was also. It turned out a lot of his horses would be a mile and a quarter, mile and a half. So, he had a had a good range of, um, you know, distances in the, in his bloodlines. A funny story about um, about octagonal it was when um, Mr. Jack and Bob. Bingham, they first started to kick off and they started to set up their their empire with with Crown Lodge and you know they started to build up the the, the training and the breeding operation and Johnny Hawks had taken over as their their um, contractor trainer and they went to New Zealand and um, Patrick Hogan he was you know probably before you know he was from what I've been told he was so good at you know, PR and, you know, getting getting his horses' names out there. And, like, back then, the, you know, the Chinese were starting to, you know, start to invest in, in Australia and New Zealand. And 
the the number was um, number eight. They, he, he put number eight on uh, branded him number eight. So for the Chinese, he was a he was a lucky horse, and um, he was so so proud of this horse of octagonal as a, as a yearling, and like obviously he was the number one draft in his in his in his um, in his group of horses or yearlings that he took to the sales and. Hawksy being as cunning and crafty as he is and wise as he is, um, you know, obviously walking around the, the sail rings, you know, you're seeing what horses are getting taken out all the time and Hawksy would be standing at a distance looking to have a look at him and just but not not someone else would have had him out. And um, so Patrick Hogan went to, um, you know, show Hawksy the horse and, and Mr Ingham and Mr Jack and Bob and he, he he just walked over, put his head over the door and basically said, nah, not really, nah, nah. So he basically <laughs> pushed him to the side because, but Hawksy loved him from the from the first time of year he laid eyes on him. So that's how they got him and um, he's out, he's out of the, you know, the very good eight-carat family. So, but he, apparently he was a stunning-looking horse and just had those really good eyes about him. But um, yeah, so Hawksy was playing ducks and drakes to to um, to secure him at the sales. The mind games that go on, eh? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Inghams because both of you have ridden for, I guess, what we call today some of the world's biggest owner breeders. Ronnie, when you were in Ireland, you rode for the Aga Khan, and I think you rode the first of John Ox's winners for the Aga Khan. Is that right? Well, primarily my trip to Ireland was, or actually Godolphin now, so it was just Sheikh Mohammed at the time. There you go. Um, so John Ox had about 40 horses in work for him. And and then the second year I was there, John sort of also had horses to the Aga Khan as well. We didn't have the cream of the crop because the cream of the crop, crop of both those clients were basically in England or France. But right. we still had a number of horses that were, you know, we had plenty of winners for them, you know. So I yeah. ran, ran my first group one winner in Ireland for, for Sheikh Mohammed, which was the best two-year-old, was the best two-year-old race in Ireland. They call them Moy Glare Stud Stakes. Uh, won it on a, a filly for Sheikh Mohammed, and um, yeah. So uh, no, I had a, I had a wonderful time in Ireland. I really, really enjoyed it. I was sort of I was sort of getting toward the end of my career in Sydney and um, Neville Begg uh, was contemplating going to Hong Kong. So I rode for Neville for over 20 years. Um, and we had a great relationship, um, a great relationship. I only had, had a good yarn with him the other day Neville, he's keeping really well, um, and uh, we had a, a good relationship. I don't know how he put up with me for 20 years, but anyway, he did. But uh, <laughs> so, but um, my Irish experience was so good, and um, um, John Ox is one of the most, the finest, one of the finest gentlemen I never come across in my life. You know. You know, the likes of Theo uh, Green, my father, Neville Begg and John Ox, I don't think you could meet 
four better individuals in your life. Mm. And uh, I really enjoyed the experience. It was so different to here. Like the track work was different. Everything was different. Darren had some experience in France, um, so he, he would have been au fait for how you worked them of the morning and all that sort of thing. Very different, but took a little bit of getting used to it because you were writing work from, from uh, say, probably 6.30, 7 o'clock till lunchtime, you know. But in between, you'd be having breakfast and all that sort of thing. So it was hard to get used to for a while, but I really did enjoy it. And I used to ask John Ox a lot of questions about horses. Um, I thought I was a reasonably good horseman uh, before I went, but I learnt a lot about the more about the actual horse than than uh, actually riding them. You know, so is he a vet, Ronnie? He was. He was a qualified vet. Um, he was a qualified vet as well, um, and uh, a very knowledgeable, very knowledgeable man. Mm. And he retired last year from training. Yeah. Um, so he didn't have any horses for the Aga Khan or Sheikh Mohammed, um, but he's seen the light and uh, said, "Well, that'll do me." I, I really like what you 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 bring up about what you learnt overseas, and and Darren, you've done the stints overseas as well. Mm. And I suppose, uh, you know, modern jockeys are doing the same. Uh, to a degree, and Hong Kong and Japan are probably now the destinations of first choice for Aussie jockeys, where it used to be Europe. Mm. What did you bring back with you from your overseas journeys? And you did a couple of stints in different spots, Darren. What, are there are there lessons that you learnt that that you think you've stuck with for your entire life? The old saying: When in Rome, do what the Romans yeah. do, and so. You you would have to try and adapt to their their style or their their type of um, you know riding or um, yeah because they all go a different speed they race a lot you know different they a lot um, the way that they race they don't race as tight um, different tracks more undulating where here in Australia they're very flat tracks it's like racing on a billiard table. You got left-handed, right-handed, straight racing all in one day. Like I rode at Maze on the feet, and you know you had a, a mile straight, and then you had um, a, a left-handed track, a right-handed track, a figure-eight track, all in the one day of racing and different winning posts. You know, instead of being a, a you know a four hundred meter straight for one race, they'd have it at six hundred meter straight. So. You, there was so much more. You had to be really on on your on your ball there on, on on your game. But what I did find that I was able to bring back from from say from from France um, was getting the horses to relax. That uh, you know they rode with a lot longer rein, um, rode against the likes of you know Lester Piggott and Freddie Head. Freddie Head rode very very short. Um, he probably rode as short as Gavin Duffy. Um, yeah, but you know, when when Ronnie and I were sort of in the eighties, the Duffy he rode pretty short, and it wasn't really fashionable. But Freddie Head, um, he was, and Eve St Martin, same thing. He rode; they rode very short, um, and then it become a little bit more. Well, Cash Asmussen was there when I was riding. He rode for um, Niarchos, 
and he and Steve Cawthon was in England, so they bought they started to bring the the American flavour to to um, to racing, and they rode a lot longer. They rode with their toe in the irons, um, so people and you know riders adjusted over the years, and so if you can take a little bit here and take a little bit there. Don't try and reinvent the wheel. Um, you know, it can work in your favour. Vinery Stud is pleased to welcome the leading three-year-old colt of his generation, Ole Kirk, the most prolific Group 1 son of champion sire Ritten Tycoon, with wins in two sire-making races, from a half-sister to Vinery's own leading sire, All Too Hard, and a full sister to the greatest sprinter of this millennium, Black Caviar. Contact the team at Vinery today to discuss a stallion with the building blocks for greatness. What about the horses? I imagine nowadays with the shuttle, you know, an Australian animal, there, there are less differences between a European animal and an Australian animal. But when you first arrived in Europe, were the animals that you were being legged up on just completely different to what you'd been riding in Australia in terms of their, their type? You know, some of the cults, some of the cults were probably, uh, you know, more. Um, we, we like the Ogre Khan, for instance. They were mainly staying staying bred horses anyway. But um, some of them, some of the some of the cults were nice big cults, you know. But uh, uh, generally, the European Irish horses probably. Um, Probably a little bit lighter bone. Um, uh, by that I mean under the knee. They just ha- haven't got a lot of substance under the knee. And I think that's why some of the stallions that we get from over there don't do so well here because generally speaking we're, our tracks are we're racing on firmer ground and they're very, very upbeat about the tracks being soft or whatever. They scratch them because the tracks are firm. We scratch them here because the tracks are wet. So <laughs> it's a different, you know, it's a different. I remember riding a horse for John and actually John Ox and the Arga Khan owned this horse and it was by Darshan. And they were re- renowned for when the when the ground went soft. So John running his first run in the race, mile and a half at Ferry House. And he said, oh, this ground will be a bit firm for him, I reckon. But he said, you know, we'll run him anyway and then we might wait five or six weeks and run him when the ground goes soft. Anyway, uh, I looked after him a little bit in the race and he run fourth and it was an enormous run. And to me... Uh, So in other words, Ron, you were trying to save him for another day. I was looking after him. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, you know... Mick Canane, when we Mick Canane, when we pulled up, he said, "Geez, that was a good run." I said, oh, "It went all right, you know." He said, "Went all right, all right." <laughs> and then a few days later, the John mentioned to me at breakfast. He said, uh, "Oh, he said, oh, I've never been asked a question by the stewards." I said, "Oh, yeah." <laughs> he said, "He said." Uh, Oh, they just thought you might have been a bit quiet on that horse the other day, you know. <laughs> I said, well, I had the whip in the other hand. They couldn't see it, John, you know. Yeah. Anyway, 
He waited five weeks to run him and the track went soft. The tracks went soft. I mean, just one by about six pulling up, you know. Like I didn't believe that that could be in, as important as as they put on it. But mm. they get it right. They get yeah, it right. That's really interesting. So that nowadays, you know, in the breeding world, a lot of the, the onus is put on horses that are on the pace, uh, a popular opinion is that horses that race on the pace and have that speed out of the gate make the best stallions. Is that something that you guys have experienced? I mean, I'll start with you, Darren, because one of the horses that you rode that became a very good stallion was quite comfortable anywhere in a field in, in Long Road. Uh, look, it takes, it takes a lot of the guesswork out, you know. Um, you know, if you have got a horse that can, can race on speed and, yeah, they can put speed into their into their progeny, um, but I guess you know you look at probably the last probably ten fifteen years and more so the last ten years is how our 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 racing stock and and our, our race what the Colts they don't they don't race on as as four year olds you know they're straight in the breeding barn they. Everything's about a, a quick turn, you know, to try and get a slipper winner, um, you know, and then if they had a few setbacks, well, then the Caulfield Guineas, well, you know, by February, March, they've retired. And um, so you don't really get to sit. It's all about, you know, hunting them up early and get them going. And, um, you know, TJ was, was the master at it and probably wrote the book as far as, you know, getting them all going and, but it's all about turnover now. It's, it's become a lot more commercialised, um, I think, um, over the last 10 years and, you know, setting up syndicates. And I, I guess, Ronnie, if you go back to when Marauding won the slipper, um, even though um, Mr Jack and Bob Ingham, they bought into him before the slipper, didn't they? Yeah, they were part owners of him uh, with the Kellys and uh, Robert Sangster. Mm, mm. So that it really sort of started to build momentum there, and now it's just it's just like a runaway train, you know. It's it's trying to get the slipper winner and you know get them into the breeding barns as quick as what they what you can. Have you sort of got an opinion there, Ronnie, on, on, on that? I mean, if you have a good cult in your, and, you know, let's hope one of these impendings is a is a superstar for you. If the big offer comes for them as a three-year-old, are, are you going to jump at it or are you more likely to, to see whether you can develop in, them into an open horse at, at four? I guess it's always, the big money's always hard to knock back. There's no question about that. But speed in Australian racing is is the key factor if you've got speed and then if you've got horses that have got speed, then you can uh, reserve that speed and reserve that finishing sprint at the end. Well, that's what makes the great horses that, and as Darren said with long row, was the acceleration. You know, that's the difference between the great horses and the average ones is the acceleration. That is the big thing, you know, like if they've got the acceleration, well, gets you out of a lot of trouble. Most of the good, yeah. most of the good horses you ride, you rarely seem to get into too much trouble in a race on them because they've got the adaptability and the speed to 
cover up your mistakes sometimes, I suppose. <laughs> so what I'm, what I'm hearing is it's not necessarily about a horse that has the speed to lead. It's, how, it, it's about a horse that has speed is what you're really looking for. And I think, I think of Bivouac, Darren, mm. that uh, race uh, as a four-year-old after the Everest, the VRC club stakes. Mm. He, I mean, he wasn't leading there, but, oh, my gosh, you want to see a horse with speed. Yeah, I think he could have been a horse that, like, being by exceed, he could have really went one way or the other. And it was very, you know, fortunate early days. I remember Blake Blake Shin winning on him and how important it is to have, you know, good riders on on qual- on horses with with potential and that have got quality because it can take one ride to ruin them and one year to try and fix them up. And sometimes they never get fixed up. Um, they, they can you you can you you'll you'll never get them back. And I think we're fortunate in the sense with Bivouac that we had good riders on him early days so you could harness that speed and acceleration and then when when he was ready to you know produce at the at the 300 or the 200 you really got to see the best of the horse before we move on i just want to go back a a, a little bit ronnie to what you were talking about with your darshan cult um with the the aga khan and and john Ock. was that the one that he looked <laughs> after the one that he looked after. Oh, right. Do you reckon that? Do you guys reckon that Aussie horses are more exposed to the public when they retire to stud than European horses? Do we know more about an Aussie racehorse than we do about a European racehorse when they retire? Well, I guess it's there for everyone to see, really. Um, you know, uh, we all look all like precocious two-year-olds, and you know, the generally, generally the uh, Slipper winners can turn out to be very good stallions, and at the end of the day, if if they even if they're not, before anyone knows how good they are, they're generally out of them for the purchase price anyway, because it takes three years to find out whether they're any good, really. One thing about the Aussie style of training and campaigning a horse is, you find out that the bad ones are bad pretty quickly too. You find out it doesn't take long to really find out. You know, you soon pick pick them out pretty quickly. Look, tell me, is there a stallion on the rise right now that you guys have an opinion of that others might not have twigged to yet? Darren, I know you're contractually obligated to mention a Dali stallion. I've I've got, um, you know, some inside knowledge and obviously, you know, we see a lot of them go through our through our our, our, our barns, but um, you know, we, we're only just starting to see the impendings and they they're coming along nice. I quite like the frosteds, even though, you know, he was over in, he, he raced in America. Um, so we've got a you know a, a great deal of international um, size shuttling. So I quite like the, the frosters, yeah. Ronnie, are there any that, you know, maybe some trainers aren't too hot on, but you are, that you, you've come across? Yeah, look, um, as far as stallions are concerned, I'm not really, uh, not quite really up on the, the younger stallions at the moment. But, um, um, you know, I think if from a trainer's point of view, when you go to look at a yearling, well, 
you've got to like the stadium, mm. and it's obviously got to have a good record, not only on the racetrack but on in the breeding barn as well. And then you're always looking to, to the mayor's side then, and uh, like Darren was saying, that Long Row and uh, Octagonal's mum, well, she obviously put a lot into that, I'm sure, and it, it, the female side has got a, a fair bit to do with it as well, no question. But from that point of view, you'd like to see a mayor that won races and produced winners. That's the yeah. ideal record. That's the that's the ideal recipe, but it's hard to get it all all correct, you know. After significant consultation, the Inglis Ready to Race sale has been moved back a fortnight to October the 26th. 185 two-year-olds will be offered, including progeny of I Am Invincible, Snitzel, Exceed and Excel, Capitalist and Written Tycoon, plus the first two-year-olds by Russian Revolution, Merchant Navy, Almanzor, Hellbent and Highland Reel. With more than 400 individual winning graduates since 2015 for almost $60 million in graduate earnings, are you ready to race? Visit inglis.com.au for catalogues. If I've got a yearling in the sale and I know it's out of a mare that you guys have either ridden or you've, you've trained or had something to do with, should I be sending you a reminder or do you guys tend to sort of gravitate towards the, the horses that are out of families that you're familiar with? Ronnie, I'll, I'll start with you. Yeah, look, I always, you know, I always look I always look at those things, you know, if, if it was a mare that you trained or you rode and uh, you, you knew how good she was well, and you and you looked at this, looked at the yearling and and you, and you quite like the stallion, well, you, you wouldn't hesitate. Hmm. Darren, I mean, impending, we keep going back to him, but he's a great example because not only did you train him, but you rode his dad and you rode his mum, Nemeson. And he he sort of, as a type, there, there's a lot of Nemeson in impending. Did you sort of notice that early on? He, got, he had a lot of toughness for a horse that really wasn't there. Um, and that's what she was. She was she was in Costa de Lago mare. It was she was a, a mare a, a filly that the the uh, the Inghams and, and Hawksy bought when they started to go out and buy um, you know stock from from the instead of breeding them. And there was a toughness about him, and that that was one of her great traits. Was she was very tough, and you you see. You know, trainers, um, you know, being interviewed after a race or um, you see them at the sales and they, they, they invariably, uh, you know, get horses or buy horses, purchase horses that, that they've got some knowing of of what the, the, the progeny would be, whether it be the sire or whether it be the dam um, or, you know, a sister to or a brother to. Um, because they do, they do pass on um, their their traits in one way or another. I bred Nemerson with with a good old mate of mine. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. And, there you uh, go. David Lamond and myself bred Nemerson, and we sold her to Jack and Bob for four hundred thousand. Mm. And uh, 
send to Jack a bit later. I reckon she's a bit worth a bit more than that, Jack, you know? <laughs> How about that? I mean, okay, then, Ronnie, so, you, you know, you've obviously not just ridden and trained some good fillies, you've also bred one. You're the authority on this call. Can you have a good race filly become a good mare? I'm just hoping that Dixie Blossoms and Daisy Doom, uh, who have both had foals by exceeding Excel, I'm hoping that they turn out okay. So, um, so they both got Daisy Doom's got a colt by exceeding Excel, and Dixie's got a a filly by exceeding Excel, and hopefully they won't be sold. Um, but I've just got to keep training for another bloody five years, so um, <laughs> that might be the test. <laughs> but, yeah, so, um, you know, I, I, think, I, think they, I think Dixie Blossoms will make a very, very good mare. She's just a beautiful, great attitude, lovely. Just you could bring her home and put her in the spare room, you know. She's that, that nice, you know. She's lovely mare, Dixie Blossoms. Daisy Doom always had a little bit of hyper, you know, but uh, it was a good bloody racehorse, that's for sure. Yeah, and and Ronnie, you've you trained to probably the best by Street Sense and, and Doomsday. Did you ride Doomsday, Darren, back in the yeah. day? Yeah, he was a did he, have, did he have a bit of temperament? He did. He, um, he I think I won the silver slipper on him. Um, he was... Um, he was a striking colt, and he had he had a he had a little bit of you know he wasn't the most uh, easiest horses temperament wise. He he you know he had a bit of bit of fight about him, but um, no, he's he's produced some. He's been a good broodmare, so I put it that way. Mm, well, Ronnie's probably hoping he'll continue to be a good broodmare, so I would do. Mm, I love the wet too. If you were put in charge of racing in Australia tomorrow, what would you do on your first day? If I was put in charge of racing, I think to try and get staff back into 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 getting the enthusiasm, getting the passion, you know, going out to try and take racing to 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 people that would that have got a love for the animal. Because that's where you know now you just don't get the like. There's there are a lot of quality you know strappers around, and but back back in the in the seventies and the eighties, or especially in the eighties when I started in racing, you know the 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 passion and the people how they just love their horses. You know they just weren't robots. You know they they without without the strappers without the staff. You don't see the full potential of the animal, and um, mm. you know, they they take them to another level. They, you know, you, 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 I've seen it over the years that, that they're a major major part of our industry, and I think that we could really, um, if we invest in the staff, I think that racing would be a much better product. I love that. I love that, Ronnie. What about you? If you we're running the game in this country. What would be the first thing you'd do to, to make it better? I totally agree with what Darren said. I totally agree wholeheartedly. Um, but uh, my line of thinking would be I think we could improve programming. I don't think we need to improve prize money because our prize money is 
the best in the world. And um, I think the uh, I think they could build some new stables around him. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Which I guess ties into to um, a little bit to what Darren's saying. I think one of the key ways to reach new staff and make it appealing to work in the racing industry is to make the conditions that they work in better, right? Well, see, when, 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 I, when you know, I was an apprentice back in 80, 81, 82, we all lived on, most of us lived on site, you know. Um, we all, boss had the accommodation there and um, now, you know, for 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 a, a strapper or, a, you know, a stable hand to to survive on, on their wages and, and rent in inner city living, you know, I think that I think that if you're going to have um, inner city uh, like track work or, or stables, you need to you need to supply staff with 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 accommodation. And what's not building like in Hong Kong, what they do over there with, for all their stable hands and strappers, they've got a massive like um, dormitory block of units where where people can stay, and you know the it's 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 not very inviting when when you know you you get x amount of dollars and then you got to get x amount back in 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 um in rent it doesn't there's no real incentive there um so i think that it it could be done a lot a lot better i think well guys i, I really appreciate you giving up your time and, and having a chat. It's been very illuminating um, and I'm just staggered by the way that your two lives have, have interweaved. Have a great spring and uh, thanks for joining us on Connections Cast. It's a pleasure. Thanks, mate. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of Connections Cast brought to you by TDN Australia and New Zealand. If you still haven't subscribed to the daily edition of one of Australia and New Zealand's leading bloodstock resources, what are you waiting for? While you're at it, why not subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode? You can do that at all good podcast providors. Give TDN or ZenZ a follow on all the socials for more cracking content and tune in for our next episode, a chat with a man behind one of the biggest stallions in the Southern Hemisphere. I've been Angus Rowland. See you next time.